0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton.
1: I'm Erin Scala.
0: And here's our show today.
1: The story of Rhone grape varieties in California is a compelling tale full of narratives fit for a Hollywood movie plot. We'll visit the Gold Rush, and we may bump into some forest cats and bears along the way. Now, wine has been in California long before Rhone varieties arrived, with the Mission grapes of Spanish origin. You could make the argument that the famous Mission grape likely also has origins on the North Mediterranean coast, just like many Rhone varieties. Rhone varieties, as we know them today, arrived on the California scene in the mid-1800s. Their arrival corresponded with the Gold Rush. As 49ers poured into the region, many people set up businesses and shops to provide food, drink, and shelter to the new arrivals. I met up with Chris Pettinger, winemaker at Skinner Vineyards in the Sierra Nevada foothills, who talks a little bit about the original Skinner Winery, set up by James Skinner, a Scottish man who came to California for the Gold Rush.
2: So, California wines kind of started when Gold Rush started. Gold Rush. So, 1849, Sutter's Mill, Marshall, that all originated right outside of Fosterville, which is the heart of El Dorado. And with that came tens of thousands of, of miners. And uh, and with that came people from all over the world. So France, Italy, Scotland, in the case of the Skinners. It thrived for over 40 years, um, through the turn of the century, leading up to Prohibition. Produced about probate records at the end, that was like, a 7,000 cases with the
1: wine. He set up Skinner Winery along the Pony Express and had a thriving winery. Skinner Vineyards today is owned by descendants of James Skinner. The new incarnation of Skinner Winery is a short distance from the original location, but they still make a few wines that nod to James's original vision, such as their Angelica wine, a fortified mistel similar to a popular Gold Rush-era beverage that was something the original Skinner Winery must have made. In the gold rush towns like Placerville, Roan varieties got their start. Placerville was formerly known as Hangtown. Can you guess why? When I drove into Placerville to spend the night, it was dark and close to midnight. The curvy mountain road that takes you there must have been a nightmare in a horse and buggy. Pulling into the old town as if on cue, a bar fight came tumbling out into the street, and just a block away, a mannequin hung from a hangman's noose commemorated the town's history as Hangtown. To me, it seemed that the Wild Wild West was thriving. As I checked into the Carry House Hotel, locally known as the Scary House, because it's definitely haunted the brawl across the street broke up and some modern-day cowboys ran past. Inside the hotel, a skeleton mannequin wore some Gold Rush-era dress, and little museum cases held all sorts of artifacts from the 1850s. What does Scary House have to do with wine? Well, I was in the area specifically to investigate Rhone varieties in California, and each room in the hotel is named after wine. There's a Cabernet room the Merlot room, the Chardonnay room, etc. And by total random chance, I was assigned the Rhone room. Just a haunting coincidence? Perhaps. If you head to another area of the Sierra Nevada foothills, you'll come across a different kind of Rhone varietal haven. Up in the town of Oregon House, here you'll find closer on a winery that Gideon Beinstock and his family runs. They live right in front of the vines, and the production is tiny. They grow Pinot Noir out front, and there's a Syrah vineyard a little further down the street.
3: Uh, there was one rosé that we make that typically is a blend or co-fermentation. All the blends that we make are co-fermentations. It means the grapes go into one tub, they ferment together. We don't do winery blends. So we have one such rosé, one such white. And, uh, and the rest are reds. The reds, one of them is a Pinot. One of them is a pure Syrah. In addition to that, we added from 2010 and on the, the blue series. It's not really a series, but the out of the blue, that is pu- nearly pure saint We co-ferment some other grapes that are picked at very low bricks and high acidity in order to acidify a little bit to sort of perk it up. Because saint when it's ripe, tends to have relatively low acidity, and we make a second variation on the theme with more co-fermented Syrah, and that we call a deeper shade of blue.
1: Gideon is a vigneron in the truest sense of the word. He keeps production small to a level that he can manage himself. The tiny winery makes expressive wines. When I visited, Gideon pointed out Saran's garden, full of delicious-looking greens at this time of year. A plump white goose wandered ahead of Gideon, as he walked through the vines, wildflowers popped up here and there, and bees hummed by my ears, and birds sang in the pine trees in the distance. Gideon's home vineyard started off as Cabernet Sauvignon, planted by the original owners. He soon grafted over to Pinot Noir and planted extra plants in some rows to increase density. He really likes the Syrah that grows down the street, and he has some Viennier there, too. Bonnie Dune is another winery that focuses on Rhone varieties. Randall Graham, an OG Rhone ranger, has moved his work to Popolishum, a site in San Juan Bautista. I drove there and then checked out the vineyards the next day. At Popolishum, Randall has food as well as wines growing. We tasted through some of the wines, including a tasty Cube R Grenache. And we talked about his two different versions of élevage. One involves aging the wine for a bit in glass demijohns or as he calls it en bonbon.
4: Are there ways if you will of charging the batteries of a wine or you know charging it such that it has this life force that enables it to persist over a longer period of time and and there's this this phenomenon of what is called the reductive élevage I'm also interested in um, the contribution of lees. They impart a really interesting characteristic to the wine, not just textural, they they enhance the the silkiness of the the wine's texture, but they also give a savoriness to the wine and they also work as antioxidants. So I had this idea of aging wine in glass bottles, Demijohns, uh, for, for an extended period of time, anaerobically, And then I had this crazy idea, well, you know, you don't want to lift them up and shake them, and you certainly don't want to open them up and um, stir them. So we put in little stir bars, little Teflon-coated stir bars in in each bottle, and then we use magnets. It's totally wacky. It's totally wacky.
1: Later in San Francisco, I caught up with Cyrus Limon, who writes a blog just about Syrah. It's called Solo Syrah he identifies a change towards less ripe, cooler climate Syrah in recent years.
2: Originally, Syrah was seen as, you know, you could plant it in California, it could be really ripe and sort of easy to, you know, it was easy to make. But I think we've seen as it's, as, as it's gone, as it's developed, that there are certain places where Syrah really does better than other places. And there are certain regions where it kind of um, picks up different characters. So there's a big, there's a big sort of... Um, I think there's been a shift towards kind of really finding those special spots for Syrah that weren't really, that people didn't really know about originally, so. Where would you identify some of those special spots? So I think Sonoma Coast is a great, is a special spot because it has a lot of cooling maritime influences that kind of keep the grape from getting getting overripe, at least for my taste buds. And then I think uh, Santa Barbara County, there's areas where there's also a lot of maritime influence So I tend towards those types of Syrah, and there are lots of little pockets too, even in warmer climate areas, there's little pockets of places where the grape can kind of, um, you know, doesn't get too ripe because of whatever reason, because it could be because of wind or, you know, some sort of cooling factor that kind of lets it ripen for longer and develop a lot of uh, savory characteristics and a lot of Northern Rhone-style characteristics that I really enjoy.
1: Now, it would be impossible to talk about Rhone varieties in California without giving a nod to the old vine. And the older vineyards are gaining more and more recognition. A group of folks interested in the historic value of these old vineyards recently founded the Historic Vineyard Society. You can search the site yourself over at www.historicvineyardsociety.org And it all started over interest in these old vines among Mike Dildine, David Gates, Bob Bialy, Tegan Pasalacqua, Morgan Twain-Peterson, and others. The group registers the vineyards and then works to test the vines to find out more about them. In old books, you can find wisps of information, like this passage from Wines and Vines of California, published in 1889 and written by Frona Eunice Waite. Waite writes, One of the largest vineyards in the state is the Natoma Vineyard, 18 miles east of Sacramento, on the line of the Sacramento and Placerville Railroad. Indeed, the railroad runs right through the vineyard, for a distance of nearly three miles. And from June to September, this ocean of vines puts to blush the great seas of grain, which silently wave on its sides. This immense area of wine-producing grapes is fringed with pear, peach, and prune trees, there are 1,900 acres in all, and the Zinfandel, Carignan, Mataro, Black Burgundy, and Chassé Noir—that's a synonym for Trousseau—Cabernet Malbec, Grenache, Charbonneau, and Mounier represent the select reds. Waite describes the soils as a gravelly deposit from the Sierra Nevada mountains and notes that they get about 2.5 tons per acre from the three- to four-year-old vines. So even back in 1889, we had Rhone varieties like Carignan, Grenache, and Mataro— in decent representation. One of the famous old Rhone variety vineyards that gets a lot of press is the Bechtold Vineyard, which is particularly known for its old vines, so.
3: The Bechtold Field in Lodi is a very old vineyard that produces Sancerre, and we bought some Sancerre from them. And the vines being 130-odd years old, I thought, well, <laughs> there's something to say for that. So as an experiment, I bought some of that, And I was extremely happy with the quality.
1: Many of the older Rhone variety plantings in Northern California, they're field blends, which was par for the course in pre-prohibition days. Why, you ask? Well, there's some conjecture. At Ridge, they've identified each variety at their Geyserville site and created color-coded maps that correspond with the different varieties. Looking at these charts, some of them look very geometric, like deliberate inner plantings where you'll see one of a particular variety every fourth vine or so. Why else might they be interplanted? Tegan Pasolacqua suggests that perhaps the interplantings have something to do with the survival rate of vines in a new vineyard. If you plant 100 vines of Zinfandel, but 20 vines die, the next year you may have to replace those vines with available cuttings, like Carignan perhaps. This need to replant vines that don't make it with available material may be why some vineyards are interplanted. And there's some mystery about some of these older vineyards. Some people who work with them try to keep them a secret, so the price they pay for fruit doesn't go up. And for the old vineyards that are recognized as historic vineyards, there's still mystery because the chain of knowledge that usually passes from one winemaker to the next was greatly disrupted with Prohibition and the Great Depression. And speaking of Prohibition and the Great Depression, Alicante Boucher plays a role in the Rhone varieties of California. This red-fleshed grape, bred in the mid-1800s, has a Rhone parent, Grenache. This grape became especially popular during Prohibition because it had thick skins that could handle the rail trip across the U.S. East coasters could buy the grapes and legally ferment a certain amount of home wine for family consumption. In an interesting twist of history, Alicante Boucher was first bred in 1866 the same year that the United States Congress would incorporate the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad, a track across America that would eventually carry tons and tons of Alicante Boucher to homebrewers on the East Coast. The track took quite some time to complete, with the middle portion completed in 1904. So the railway finally stretched from the Pacific to the Atlantic, just before Prohibition. If the track hadn't been completed before the Great Depression, would the East Coasters have been able to make quantities of wine in their home? We may never know. Alicante Boucher's thick skin also made it a special variety during the Great Depression. At a boisterous Rhone Rangers gathering, you'll hear the crowd in the background, I caught up with David Gates from Ridge Winery. He explains the special properties of Alicante Boucher that may have made this a good grape for desperate times.
3: And Alicante Boucher was priced because you could ferment it like three times if you added, you know, once it was dry. Then you press it off and there's still so much color in the skins that you could add water and sugar and a little acid and make another, you know, wine. At least make alcohol ferment a couple times.
1: <laughs> so during the Great Depression, you could just add water to Alicante Boucher skins and get multiple ferments. That's one way to increase rota. Gates, of course, was clear to point out that this was a practice of the past used really during the Great Depression. Moving south from here, you head to the Santa Cruz Mountains. This region has a long history of wine. And in Waite's 1889 book, the Santa Cruz Mountains were predicted to be the Chablis of the U.S., producing whites with steely, Chablis-like characteristics. Wines from Ben Lomond Winery, the namesake of today's Ben Lomond Sub-AVA of the Santa Cruz Mountains, won awards at the World's Fair Expositions in Paris for what they called their Sauterne wine. Today's Santa Cruz Mountains is more known for Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay, but you will find some Rhone varieties here and there. Driving further south, you'll end up in Paso Robles. One of the important producers of Rhone varieties is Tablas Creek. They actively bring in grape varieties from the Rhone, work them through the quarantine periods in nurseries, and they make some of the more unique Rhone variety wines in California, like a very pretty Terra noir. They have a relationship with the parent family of Boca in the southern Rhone, and they work together to bring Rhone varieties to California, clones and varieties that might not have been in the state before the 90s. Currently, Paso Robles is known for Rhone varieties and for Pinot Noir, but the wine history goes back much farther. Ascension Winery planted Zinfandel in the early 1880s, but it took almost a century for Rhone varieties to take off. In the early 1970s, Gary Eberle planted Syrah at Estrella River Winery. Gary Eberle's planting was a turning point for Rhone varieties in Southern California. Most producers today pointed to him as one of the key figures in Rhone varieties moving south of Paso Robles. By 1994, in Paso Robles, there were just under 100 acres planted to Rhone varieties. By 2006, there were over 2,200 acres planted to Rhone varieties. That's some explosive growth. And one of California's Rhone producers, Bob Lindquist of Coupe Winery, made his first Syrah from Eberly's grapes. I popped by Coupe Winery in the Santa Maria Valley, and I got the story from Bob.
5: So so the first Syrah that I made was 1982 from grapes that I bought from the Estrella River Vineyard up in Paso Robles, which was planted by Gary Eberly in the kind of the mid-'70s. Estrella River was a winery that uh, Gary was a part of, and he had gotten the cuttings from UC Davis uh, before they were uh, certified. That clone that he planted at Estrella River is now commonly referred to as the Estrella River clone. It came originally from Chapoutier, but there was no... Certification or official, like paper trail to you know, to say you know, there was no no uh, official provenance, I guess is the right word for, for it, uh, saying that it was a Chapoutier clone. So, that's anyways, that, that was the first one that I made from 1982. And and then we planted Syrah here at Biennecito. We actually grafted an old Riesling vineyard, a, a vineyard that was planted in 1973 to Riesling on its own roots, grafted over to Syrah in 1986, got the first crop in 87. And then uh, I've been making Syrah from that vineyard here at Bien Nacido, from that block, ever since.
1: After working with Everly's Syrah, Lindquist started planting Syrah in the Santa Maria Valley. Santa Maria Valley Syrah at Bien Nacido is the prized stuff. Here is Craig Jaffers of Jaffers Winery. At
6: Jaffers Wine Cellars in Santa Barbara, we've been around for 20, 23 years. I guess I would fit in as the second wave of Syrah producers in Santa Barbara County, following some of my heroes, like Bob Lindquist and Adam Tomac And guys nobody ever heard of, like John Kerr. But yeah, there was not much around. And you know, the winery really grew not so much with demand for wine, but finding food sources. You know, the next year, after getting Thompson fruit, the Stoltmans had their new vineyard in Ballard Canyon that was producing Rhone varietals, and I was able to get more Vedra and Garnache and them, which was just great. I didn't know what I could do with them, but I was going to take them, and we'd figure the details out later. And I think the next year, Bien Aceto had a new planting at ZD Block, which was high up 500 feet above the valley floor in Santa Maria, just facing into the ocean breeze. We got a couple acres of that, and that sea block,
1: is that the that one that the mountain goes up behind it? Yeah, there's
6: this big massive behind it. And it's just like this big reflective shield. And I think that's the secret to that block. It's not steep. It's The block itself is like on a mesa. And it looks out towards the ocean, but it's got this big mirror behind it that just shoots all the light down into it.
1: The Santa Maria Mesa is a truly beautiful place. The drive there takes you over long, paper-flat expanses including an as-far-as-the-eye-can-see lettuce farm. But once you enter the valley, rolling hills and massifs drop down from rockier mountaintops, and it's almost like a little brigadoon of lush green vegetation in the middle of a desert-like expanse. I drove out of the valley, over a dried-up creek, which recently has had some water flowing after several drought years, and back across the flatlands. But it didn't remain flat for long, Thick forested mountains rose up soon as I headed toward Zakamesa. Zakamesa is actually where Bob Lindquist met and worked with Jim Clendenin for the first time when Jim was the assistant winemaker there. I was particularly interested in learning more about Zakamesa's Black Bear Block, a block of Syrah up in the mountains. I'd tasted the 2006, about five or six years ago, and I was hoping to visit the vineyard site. Dane Campbell at SACA Mesa Winery told me more.
7: Um, Those are currently the oldest uh, Syrah vines we have planted here on the Central Coast and the first Syrah vineyard planted in Santa Barbara County. Ken Brown was the winemaker at the time in the late 70s and early 80s when when that original vineyard was planted, and it was an experiment. Um, It was at a time in the history in Santa Barbara County when it was... There was still a lot of experimentation going on of what to grow where, and our vineyard, Zaca Mesa Vineyard, was was critical in, in understanding the, um, you know that that certain areas of the valley are not ideal for growing Pinot or Cabernet, and that um, it was that original block of Syrah planted in 1978 um, that kind of triggered the Rhone movement here in Santa Barbara County um, and really got things going.
1: And where did those cuttings come from? Mm-hmm.
7: So the history behind the Black Bear Block, uh, it has a it has a long history. Um, you could take it all the way back to Chapoutier's vineyard in Hermitage. Um, it's said to be a suitcase clone um, that came from cuttings that were snuck over uh, from his Hermitage vineyard, and it was planted in a small um, planted in a small pruning vineyard near a freeway overpass. Um, by some of the UC Davis professors, and when Gary eberly was was uh, going through california
1: huh here 's mention of Gary Eberly again
7: um, he was looking for clean cuttings of Syrah. And at that point in time there, there was nothing that was really clean. it was kind of pre all the Shiraz clones and pre the pre all the uh, on top clones so um, he actually spoke with one of his UC Davis professors and found out that there was this little block um, planted um, that was undocumented. So there was no papers behind where it came from, but that it had originally come from Chapoutier's vineyard and that the vines were clean and virus free. And so he took those cuttings and planted a Estrella River vineyard in the mid 70s. And then when, when uh, our first winemaker, Ken Brown, was looking to experiment with some different grape varietals, he, you reached out to Gary Eberly and took cuttings from Gary and planted the black bear block in 1978, uh, which was the first, again, first block of Syrah planted here in Santa Barbara County.
1: So why did they call it the black bear block?
7: So yeah, the black bear name um, comes from a story. And this, this happened in the early 1990s with our, with our vineyard manager, Ruben Camacho and, our vineyards are, we're very close to the San Rafael Mountains. So we get a lot of wildlife that will come come down. We're, we're at about 1,500 feet of elevation and the black bears right about 1,400 feet. So we get a lot of, lot of different uh, animals that will come down from the mountains. And in one of the harvests um, in the early 90s, Reuben was driving out towards this end of our vineyard where the where these Syrah vines were, and he had two dogs um, at the time, and he actually lives on the property. And those, when he parked, those two dogs took off and and started barking and running after something. And so he was curious, so he he got out of his truck and and walked over there and and found out that his dogs had treated a black bear that was eating the fruit of that particular block of Syrah. So, um, being that it was the first block of Syrah planted in Santa Barbara, and had such Historical significance. We thought it would be a great name to kind of give it, and kind of so people would know the Black Bear Block, and it's become a really famous kind of quintessential Syrah here in, in California.
1: Okay, so now we had the skinny, and it was time to go to the site. Dean took me out to Black Bear Block. Did I have to worry about big cats and bears? Uh, not too much, he said. Once we were there, and it wasn't that easy to get to we saw what is today the oldest Syrah vineyard in the area. Zachamesa had recently took cuttings from these vines and planted a younger vineyard right next to the Black Bear Block to preserve some of that plant material. They call it Baby Bear. One thing I noticed about being up there was that there was all of this wild sage growing nearby. I grabbed a sprig for dinner. You could smell that sage and those forest aromas in the air. And you can smell it in the wines from Black Bear Block, too. Driving from Zacamesa to Santa Barbara County, you enter a newer wine-growing area where in the 1990s, the vineyard acreage grew by over 10,000 acres. The newer sub-AVA Ballard Canyon, founded in 2013, puts a major focus on Syrah. Here you'll find some great wines at Stoltman Winery, where Syrah seems to reign, and you'll also find some neat Syrah from Ryan Roark. We sat down to taste some of the Syrahs he makes from different places within Santa Barbara County their different styles and different soil types really highlight the diversity of Syrah that can be made in the Santa Barbara County.
8: So for example one would maybe only want to grow Pinot Noir out in the far western side of the San Ynez Valley, in the western third of the San Ynez Valley, in in the Santa Rita Hills. Whereas Syrah we have Syrah planted in the far east side of the valley and the far west side of the valley. And depending on if you grow it in Happy Canyon AVA on the far east, if you grow it In Ballard Canyon, or the middle part of the San Inez Valley, or if you grow it out on the west side of the San Inez Valley in the Santa Rita Hills, Syrah takes on different characters in all these different microclimates and different soils. And so, for example, this Syrah is from Ballard Canyon. So, in this area, you have like this particular vineyard is basically sand over calcareous plant or calcareous parent material. So, there's, um, you know, totally different structure and totally different components in this wine versus the next wine that we'll try, which is from the eastern side of the San Inez Valley, right outside the town of San Inez. So,
1: this is sand and limestone, essentially?
8: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. When you go, if you drive through Ballard Canyon, there's a couple places where the road cuts, where they cut through hills. And you can always see soil profiles in those types of areas. My uncle that was a geologist, he told me one time when we, when we were visiting that area and everything, if you look, you have a lot of like river stones, like kind of stones that like fist size up to, you know, kind of grapefruit size that are soft and everything. And, you know, you're obviously like, oh, that those are stones from a river. And what he was telling me is, and they're suspended in soil. And what he said is a lot of times that's um, – That's characteristic of mud flows, you know, because soil, you know, mud or whatever from a hillside came and swept through like a a drainage and picked all that up. And if you think of that, that's like perfect, well-draining soil for like grapevines and stuff. And so when you look at the, you know, this vineyard, where it is and where some of those cutouts that I'm telling you about, like it's almost, if you were to walk through this vineyard, it's almost pure sand, but you can imagine underneath it is... These cobbles and everything suspended in, you know, kind of probably like a silty type sand. But then you have vineyards just down the street, like Stoltman Vineyard. But there's there's pockets and ribbons of limestone through there. And when you look at the, the stones too, it's, you know, it's calcareous parent material. So I think it has that kind of stuff, you know, the well-draining soils and the sand and everything has a big impact on the flavor profile. But I think with this wine... When I made this wine, I used a lot of stems. It's probably about sixty percent stem inclusion. It was also picked um, picked before the grapes were starting to get too ripe, so it has a lot of acid. When I bottled this wine over a year ago, I mean it was so wound up. And this bottles this bottle's been open for a day. I mean it's it's the second. I mean I, I mean I'm sure you've opened a few of these bottles. You know it needs to it needs a little air. It needs a little time. It's hard to say. I mean, the, the next wine is, is completely different. And so it's hard, to, it's hard to say which variables, you know, impact what. But this vineyard is in Santa Inez. So about five, six miles further east, warmer part of the valley, but it's also down close to the river. So it's in a relatively low spot. So yes, it does get hot, but it also gets cold as well different type soil, kind of a clay loam over um, slate type character, you know, slate type stuff. Stems. Stems about 25%, so much less stems. And picked riper. You know, um, my buddy and I, we we take care of this vineyard together, and it's only one acre. And so this last year during harvest, we just – we didn't get to pick it. We didn't pick it as quick as we wish we could have. And we both have discussed that we wish we would have picked it a little earlier. I think, I think this year with this wine, I want to pick it a little earlier and use more stems.
1: Thanks for sharing Ryan. Santa Barbara County became known in the seventies for Pinot Noir Chardonnay. And now recently you're seeing more and more Syrah in Santa Barbara County. Sashi Mormon works with some of the fierce vineyards near the coast that are planted to Pinot Noir. If you've had a chance to try the Bloomsfield or the Memorius bottlings from Domaine de la Cote, you can see some of what Santa Barbara can make. And standing in those vineyards, you can look out and see white spots dotting the landscape where diatomaceous earth quarries are. And that really gives you a sense of the surrounding terroir. Sashi also works with Syrah through his Pedro Sassi label, focusing on cooler climate Syrah. Going even farther south, you'll find Cumulus Vineyard, where the Crankles work with Rhone varieties and gave grapes like Grenache some press and attention with their Sinequinon wines. On this journey to learn more about Rhone varieties in California, I noticed that going north to south, the Rhone variety legacy gets newer. From the Super old So in Lodi to the Gold Rush Skinner Legacy near Placerville, or Hangtown, to the Eberly Vineyard in Paso Robles, and to the 70s-era Legacy Syrah Vineyard at Zaca Mesa, to the newer plantings of Syrah in Ballard Canyon, planted in 2016. A new chapter of Rhone varieties seems to open up with each stop on the journey south. Travel in the other direction, south to north, and it's almost like going back in time. You can take a tour of historic vineyards in California from youngest to oldest, and this legacy of historic vines affects the winemaking in the different regions. In the north, there's almost a ferocious need to safe-keep the old vineyards. Winemakers like Tegan Pasilacqua, Morgan Twain Peterson, and David Gates, they see themselves almost as stewards of those old vineyards, planted long before they were born. Part of their goal is to preserve these vineyards and showcase their special qualities. This driving motivation of preservation can be seen in their efforts at the Historic Vineyard Society and in their wines. Whereas down in Central and Southern California, the focus is on planting new vineyards and nailing the right variety in each microclimate. Here there's a fresher canvas where winemakers like Ryan Rourke are tweaking their approach to certain vineyards. And winemakers like Sashi Mormon are planting vineyards and honing in on the diversity of the subregions, across Santa Barbara County. In Northern California, farming, for instance the Bechtold Vineyard, is an act of protecting legacy. On the Santa Maria Mesa, farming Syrah is creating legacy. And William Allen of Two Shepherds makes a key distinction between older Rhone variety vineyards and the Rhone varieties that are newer to California. Thanks to people who bring them in, like the folks at Tablas Creek. Rhone varieties in
8: California are still, I think, an up-and-coming category. Uh, It's not been that long for many of the Rhone varieties that we've actually had them. Thanks to people at Tablas Creek who introduced them 20 years ago, we didn't even have things like Grenache Blanc and other varieties. So, an emerging category, I think a very exciting time.
1: Exciting indeed. Larry Schaefer of Tercero also focuses in on the excitement of Rhone varieties. In California?
7: So, for me, it's um, they're really exciting varieties that not only play well with each other's but, but stand alone really well. Um, they really show their sense of climate. So, warm climate is going to be totally different than cold climate. Um, and we're, we're at the infancy, in my mind, in California, even though we've been growing roads for over a 100 years, we're really at the infancy in terms of where we can go.
1: Depending on where you are, You'll see vast differences in the Rhone varieties in California, but one thing is for certain: these grapes really make the California wine landscape incredibly interesting and incredibly exciting.
0: All drink to that is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the This episode was made possible by a professional study travel grant offered by
4: the Roan Rangers, as well as the James Beard Foundation Scholarship Program.